Ezekiel chapter 17. Before we finish tonight, we will be discussing the rest of our December schedule. So just keep that in mind. Ezekiel chapter 17. I don't believe her vote counts anymore. <laughs> Ezekiel 17. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So here we have a riddle that he's, he's doing. This is the eagle and the vine. The historical background is we're not going to read these scriptures, but they're in there if you want to go and look at them. Second Kings 24, 6 through 20, Second Chronicles 36, 8 through 16, and Jeremiah 37 and 52, 1 through 7. You'll get some of the historical aspects of this. Now, riddles sometimes can bring us to a point of conviction before we realize who we convicted. <laughs> Such is the case with David. David was given a riddle and he, uh, of course, convicted the person and didn't find out until afterwards it was him. So that's sometimes why we, we can use this. Right now, t- speaking to them normally is not helping them get the idea that they are in the wrong. So the riddle is brought out. In verse 3, and, thus, or, and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch and cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches and put forth shoots. Now the great eagle here is Babylon. And it came to Lebanon in Jeremiah 22 from 23 on. You, If you want to look at that sometime, that will show you where it's talking about Israel and Judah being in the, uh, being Lebanon. So when the great eagle, which is Babylon, comes to Lebanon, it's coming to Judah here. The highest branch is likely the royal house and the topmost young twig is speaking of Jehoiachin, who is the son of the deposed king when Babylon came in. And so he took him back to Babylon with him. In verse 5, it says that he took some of the seed of the land. This likely refers to Zedekiah. Of, he was of the royal house, and this is the one that Nebuchadnezzar chose to set up. So Zedekiah is given, in fact, he changed his name to Zedekiah from his original, and that's what he is mostly known by. So he, let's read verse 5 again. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. So he put Zedekiah in a place where he could prosper where he could succeed. And that's what it's referring to here. He's planted in a fertile field. So he gave him conditions that were conducive to him having success. Like a willow tree, this is less than one of the cedars, which is what Lebanon is known for. It's known for its cedars. And of course, Israel right now is is called the tallest of the cedars. And at the very top of that is where the royal house is. So you get a willow tree, which apparently they had a lot lot of over in the land of Babylon. So Ezekiel would have had plenty to look at. It was a lower tree. And of course, it's uh, very different in its uh, stature 
from that from that of a cedar. Cedars are very tall, very majestic, uh, very strong, whereas a willow is has a lot more mobility to it. But this particular willow, as he read it, he said it like a willow tree, so it may not have actually been a willow tree. And then we find out from the next verse that it grew and became a spreading vine. Now we heard about Israel as the vine before. That wood is useless if it's not producing fruit. There's nothing that it's good for. That's all that a vine is is useful for. So we're here once again getting back to the vine. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. So the low stature of this one, in contrast to the towering nature of the cedars, shows that he's uh, he's in a place to prosper, but he's his uh, area of success is only going to get so high. Now, a lot of this is because Babylon took all the best of the land out. So he uh, didn't have the the great minds of society around. A lot of the trades that you would need to to uh, build an army and so forth, he took all those trades with him. So they were not left with a whole lot to build from, but still he had enough to be successful. So it became a vine and it brought forth branches and it put forth shoots, so it was growing. Um, over in verse verse 7, is, well, actually I didn't give you your blanks here, verse 5 uses the word he a lot. This would seem to indicate that it was Nebuchadnezzar's idea, not God's. Let's read verse 5 again. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. Now sometimes when we go over the period of Israel where Babylon came down and conquered them but didn't burn the city and didn't destroy the city and took some of the people captive but left some of the other ones there that we tend to think that was the plan of God. It may very well not have been the plan of God. It may have simply been the plan of Nebuchadnezzar. And God's plan may have been to dethrone it all at once. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it. He did his own plan. And uh, But God's, if God's plan was to bring them down, they were going down. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if he came in there, he thought, well, there's, surely we can trust these people. Surely we can uh, set them on a path that would be good for us and for them. And he tried to go in that direction. And God surely had gone in this direction and found out, nope, they're not going to go in a direction that's good for everybody. They're going to go in a direction they want, whether it's good for them or not. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar found out. And when he came back again, he just burned the whole place down and knocked down the wall and uh, really took care of it. But this idea here of this period of time where Jerusalem was conquered but is not destroyed may simply be a plan of Nebuchadnezzar and not part of the plan of God. That would seem to coincide with the rest of the things we see in the prophecies of Jeremiah and the prophecies of, of Ezekiel because we don't see anywhere where if, if you guys truly repent, I'll bring you back. God is always talking about, nope, you are, you are coming this way. <laughs> so it doesn't seem that there was, there was really this part of the plan of God was for them to be there for these next number of years. But um, notice God's in no rush. His plan will come about. Well, let's go on to verse 7. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. Slightly different description for this one than we have for the for the other. Uh, it is somewhat to note that Nebuchadnezzar 
being called the first great eagle, one of the gods of the Babylons had the head of an eagle. But here you now have uh, this next eagle coming in. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. The second great eagle is Egypt. Of course, Egypt is always the thing that causes problem for for um, Israel. In Jeremiah 44 and verse 30, I'm just going to read this for you. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh, Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life. And I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. So Pharaoh Hophra, or he's also known as, uh, I'll spell this for you, A-P-R-I-E-S, a priest, a priest, I think it is. This is the Pharaoh of the day. This is the Pharaoh that comes along to help Zedekiah. Verse 7, But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. And it was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Now, his purpose here was only to become a vine, but it was to bear fruit. Now, if the purpose, or is the, if Israel being left in the land and the Jerusalem not being destroyed when Babylon came the first time, then the purpose is not God's purpose. The purpose is Nebuchadnezzar's purpose, that they would bear fruit for the, for them, which they didn't do. Now, in the first instance, when he was planted, it said that it leaned towards the great eagle, but its roots remained underneath of it. Its roots didn't go towards the eagle, didn't go to the water. It seemed like there was some apprehension with the uh, with Israel or with Judah going towards Babylon completely. We know from some of the history, Zedekiah was under those who were more prone to Egypt than to Babylon. There were two political thoughts, and it was very political that was going on here in Israel. You had one political group... I guess we would call it a party, but they had one political group and they side more with Babylon. And then you had another political group and they side more with Egypt. And so each group is trying to pull the leaders to go in, a dire- in, in that direction. Some want to be more on the side of Babylon and some want to be more on the side of Egypt. Now, Jeremiah was giving uh, credence to those who would side with Babylon. Then he said, no, this is what you need to do. You need to submit to them. You need to give in to them and uh, not fight. And not go down to Egypt when that came up as a, as a thing. And so when you see their resistance, when they came to Jeremiah, we went over that scripture not too long ago, and they came to Jeremiah and they say, hey, what should we do? Uh, the guy that uh, Nebuchadnezzar put up is dead, and we are fearing that uh, bad things are going to happen. And so Jeremiah said, I'll go away and seek the Lord. And so he went away and sought the Lord, and I think it was 10 days he came back and he said, nope, Lord said stay. He said, don't go down to Egypt, but you've already made up your mind to go down to Egypt anyway. And they had, because uh, this particular group, this particular party that was more inclined to assign or to align themselves with Egypt was in a greater position to power. And that's where they were leading the country. God wasn't leading the country. The things of the word weren't leading the country. It was uh, people's opinions and which way they wanted to go. And so they were of the mindset that Egypt was the way to go. Now, how many times since Israel left Egypt have they been bent on going back? And how many times did it work? Isn't it amazing? That from the time that they left, 
As soon as they ran out of water, they want to go back to Egypt. As soon as they ran into the, 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 the Red Sea, they wanted to go back to Egypt. As soon as there was no food, they wanted to go back to Egypt. As soon as they faced battles, they wanted to go back to Egypt. So constantly they wanted to go back to Egypt. And they wanted to do that. And even after they got into the promised land, there were still times they wanted to align themselves with Egypt. And they still had done so. They kept going back to Egypt. And not a single time did it ever work out. Josiah was one who came against Egypt instead of aligning with them. And uh, uh, Egypt wanted to come through and do what God had told her to do. And Josiah was, had already left some of the things he was supposed to have been doing and decided to rebel against God even more. And uh, that didn't, did not work out so well for him. And so he died in that battle. But it never one time worked out for them. And yet they continue to go there. And there's people who say they operate under wisdom and they give counsel, let's go, about, let's go over to Egypt. And you cannot find a single time in all of their hundreds of years that they've been a nation that it worked for them. In fact, every single time they've tried it, they've tried to go back and rely on it, that um, it was bad. And even by one of them, uh, one place, it, it called Egypt a, a, a reed that would pierce them when they leaned on it. And, but they stopped, kept going back to it. And it, I, I think of the same thing here in this country, that how many times we have people who keep wanting to go to a socialistic style of government even though you can point in history that it has never one time worked out. Never once. Not a single time. And we've tried it in this country a few times. Of course, the biggest one is our uh, our founding, which we just celebrate, celebrate, but Thanksgiving looks back to the founding. And the founding of this country was a socialistic country. Everybody all familiar with that? We were founded as a socialist society. And it failed. And people were dying. And uh, is that new to anybody? Y'all know about that? There are a couple of people say, "Oh, I'll just, I'll just give you the, the rundown on, just so everybody's uh, aware." But when we when they came on over from the in the from the in the pilgrims and they came over in the boat, the idea was they set up the camp and everything everybody had everything in common. So if you um, if you really worked hard, you got the same reward as someone who didn't work hard at all. Now I can't imagine that there's too many people who would have made that trip who would la- who were lazy, completely lazy. You know, you run into some people they don't want to do any work at all. You're going to make that trip. I cannot imagine that any of them were just completely lazy. But obviously, when you have a group of people, some are more industrious than others. And so, when you equal it all out, then the industrious ones tone they tone it back. I'm not going to get that much anyway. And the um, colony was dying. I mean, literally, they were dying. They were not making enough food. They, um, they were having a hard time getting, getting along. And so, um, uh, Bradford, in his notes and his, uh, things he did, made that note that he, he made the switch. And so instead of a socialistic plank where everything is held in common, he, uh, zoned out. This is your land. Whatever you get from it is yours. You sell it, you trade it, you eat it, you, whatever you do, it's yours. It's no longer held in common. And they did that for each of the, each of the families. They were given a, a plot of land and this was theirs to, to do. And so that saved the colony. And so they came back and, and they had a great success. And this was the history of Thanksgiving. And so when they were giving thanks, it was not giving thanks to the Indians. Which 
the history books, of course, have perverted and made Thanksgiving into something completely different, that the Indians were the ones who saved them. That was not that way at all. They had got, all gotten along, but they had a Thanksgiving feast because they were thankful to God that their colony was saved. And they had an abundance of things, and so they had the Thanksgiving feast, to which they invited the Indians, and certainly the Indians were helpful to them. They showed them how to grow some crops and things like that, but uh, they understood we owed our existence to God. And so that's what Thanksgiving was about. Of course, they perverted it, made it into something completely different than it is now in the schools anyway. But some people still know the true story of what happened and why we had Thanksgiving. But socialism failed in this country and we were founded on it. And then they went over to what we would call a capitalistic system where everybody, you have what you have and if you succeed more than someone else, then you prosper more than someone else. But still, people keep trying to push things into a socialistic area, even though we have countless areas over in Europe who keep trying to go that direction. And when they do, it, uh, it falters. We have people down in South America, Venezuela is the latest one. They went from a highly prosperous society where uh, people had plenty. And in 10 years after adapting socialism, uh, there's, uh, the money was useless, it was worthless, and there was no food to feed the people and people are starving. In 10 years it went that way. And, and God is not a socialist. There's a reason why these uh, nations keep pushing for these kind of things because the enemy knows that under that kind of government more oppression can happen on people than any other. But anyway, all that to say, no matter how many times they see Egypt failed them, they still go back. So if you ever wonder why people do such stupid things and keep going back to things that don't work, how many times people go after God and God starts to build their life back up and things start to get better and then as soon as things start to get better, they go back to the old ways. And you wonder, why do they go back to the old ways? How can they do that? Look at how much better it is. You look at uh, people that are addicts and they, they've gone in the way of addiction and, and people have uh, helped them out. And uh, great sacrifice on their part, but they've helped them out, they pulled them out and before long, uh, uh, it seems like they're just pulled right back into that same lifestyle. Why is it that we keep going back to these things that don't work? There is a pool. There is a pool for Israel. Of course, uh, Satan knows that if they get, if he gets them in league with Egypt, that it will not go well for them. So he keeps trying to pull them into that. And we still have people in this country. They know if we go in certain directions, it will not go well for us. And so they keep trying to pull us into that direction. But here we have it that this was another great eagle, slightly different description, but uh, still some some similarities. But here, it says in uh, verse 7 and 8, And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him. Now the roots, that's the, that's the foundation of the plant. That's where it's getting all its nutrition. And it didn't, what specifically said the roots were underneath of it. They didn't, it did, the roots didn't go towards the first eagle. That was Babylon. Because there was a resistance to going all in with Babylon. But they hadn't gone another direction. But then Egypt came up. And when Egypt came up, they began to go towards that direction and their roots went in that direction. Again, more of uh, the branches began to go in that direction too. So they went from going out towards the, the uh, first eagle to going towards the second eagle. And then, of course, they were in full uh, rebellion. So from the garden terrace where it was planted that he might water it, it was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. 
but they didn't go that direction. Maybe they thought we can become more than a vine. We don't like that the idea for us is to become a vine that is just going to be here to bring fruit for the the eagle. I don't know what it was. That's not in the in the riddle. So it never worked well for them to lean on Egypt before, but hey, let's try it again. Now Jeremiah the prophet had spoken against this. Of course, Ezekiel is over in his land. And there are other prophets as well that are going out and saying this same message. Now the... Uh, let's see if we... Where did we have that? Did I not copy it in? Go over to verse 9. Say, Thus says the Lord God, Will it thrive? Will He not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All its spring uh, leaves will wither. And no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Now, the way you read this right here, and it may very well be the, the right rendering. I'm not trying to tell you that I know which, which way this should go. But if you read this right here, it sounds like uh, not a whole lot of power is needed to uproot these guys. Which is probably true because all the good stuff has already been taken out of the place. And uh, their, their roots are not taking the, the sustenance that they were supposed to be taking. But there is uh, one authority out there that, who, uh, on, on Hebrew and so forth. And they have a little different way to render this. They render it, Not with great power or much people will, will men be able to raise it up from its roots. So they, he flips it around on this one. I'm not be able to tell you which one is right. I would think from the context that the way we have it in the King James, New King James is fine. But I just want to let you know that that other thinking is out there for it. It still won't change the the uh, passage for us, but that is uh, that is something to look at. And of course, it would take a whole lot to build them back up again once they're destroyed. Now, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah thirty-seven five through fifteen that when the Egyptians came in support of Jerusalem, the Babylonians term, terminated the siege of Jerusalem long enough to take care of the Egyptians, and then they came and destroyed Jerusalem. So Egypt coming in, uh, and you can, I gave you that reference just, just in case you want to write it down and look it up later on. Jeremiah 37, 5 through 15 is where it is. Uh, this tells the, the story of what had gone on, that Babylon left the siege of Jerusalem to go on over there. Now, if you were the, in the city of Jerusalem and you saw Babylon leave the siege to go out there and take care of Egypt, you're thinking your plan worked. And probably the prophets that were going along that way, they probably chimed right in there. See, we told you, if you go this way, and then they probably ganged up on Jeremiah. And they said, hey, you gave us a false word. And Jeremiah's probably saying, don't let this fool you. They're coming back. He's probably telling them they're going to win this battle over there, and then they're going to come back, and they're going to finish this off. And then they didn't like to hear that, and they probably gave him some more abuse. But whatever it might be, uh, verse 9, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, Will it thrive? Will he not be pulled up by its roots? So this one, uh, I mean the whole plant's gone. We're pulling it up by the, its roots. This thing is done. Cut off its fruit, leave it to wither. All of its spring leaves will wither. And no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither? 
when the east wind touches it. Now the east wind here, as is uh, elsewhere, the symbol of a scorching or devastating power that would come down upon somebody and just dry them, dry them up. If you had a good root system, you might be able to survive that. But uh, they did not have a good root system for that. I gave you some references there to the east wind. And that's uh, Ezekiel 19.12, Hosea 13.15, Jonah 4.8, and Job 27.21. That's just if you want to go out there and, and look it up at the east wind. It talks about it coming in and just... They are not. They are in mine. I have it written down in mine. I thought I meant it was written down in yours. I'll write them again for you. East wind for Ezekiel 19 and verse 12. Ezekiel 19, 12, Hosea 13 and verse 15, Jonah 4, verse 8, and Job 27, 21. Ezekiel 19, 12, Hosea 13, 15, Jonah 4, 8, Job 27, 21. Those are the places for the east wind if you want to see some other, other places for it. So it just kind of throws it out here and says the east wind... Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. So whenever the east wind comes up, it's usually for this kind of a negative thing. It comes in as a drying, destroying type of a power. So that's the extent of the riddle, little parable that he gives them. And we're going to go on here in verse 11 in um, Ezekiel 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that be by keeping his covenant, it might stand. Now, these are the things that have already happened. He's not predicting any of this. This has already occurred. That they came, the king of Babylon has come down. He took the king's offspring and he took the, the one and carried it over to Babylon with him. We're told from the word that's the one that had a little bit of bright light in him. And that's why he was uh, taken to spare him from what was going to, what was going to happen. And he took the king's offspring, verse 13, made a covenant with him and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land. So he took Zedekiah, which we know him by, and he made a covenant with him. Now think about this. Zedekiah is one who is more prone to Egypt than he is to Babylon. And you'll see that in the riddle because in the riddle, when he is established, he he puts the visible parts. He acts like he is submitted to to the eagle. Because the branches all leaned that way, but the roots stayed right with them. Because I, I am in inside, I am not submitted to you. So this would mean that Zedekiah would have had to put on a face and a front and lied to to uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, about his intentions, about what he was going to do and what he would do. And he sold himself to Nebuchadnezzar. So that Nebuchadnezzar said, I think we can trust this guy that's put him in charge. Because really, how risky is it if you come in and you conquer a nation, if you take one of the royal members and put him in charge? Even if you took all the good stuff out of the land and figured that was enough to keep them from rebelling, 
That's still a risk. But he did it. Still amazes me that he had done so. We have more to, to look at in there. Let me just finish off this, this part of it. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? That's the second time the covenant is mentioned. Now this is what's happening. This is the stuff that's going on right now. Verse 16, As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke. That's another time the covenant is mentioned. Covenant he broke with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. This is what is to come. He said Babylon is going to come. They are going to lay siege to this and they're going to bust this place up. There's no doubt this is happening. It's not a kind of thing that if you do this, this won't happen. He's just saying this is what's going on. Again, if it was the intention of God all along to bring Israel into a place of judgment when he came the first time, and this is Nebuchadnezzar's plan, then you can understand why God is saying, this is not a choice on this one, this is going to happen. Verse 18, Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. So, verses 16 and 17 mentioned the breaking of the covenant. Verse 18 mentions the breaking of the covenant. Verse 15 mentions the breaking of the covenant. And verses 11 through 14 make mention of the making of the covenant. So in these verses, 11 through 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, we have the covenant mentioned being broken four different occasions. How many think that could be important? <laughs> it surely, surely would seem to indicate that this is something of importance. Now, when two nations make an oath, you come and you make the covenant, you make it, you, you'll swear by it. But when you have two nations coming together, what do you swear by? What do you make the covenant by? Now, the, in this day and age, of course, the, all nations had gods. We don't see some of the nations that try and say we have no God. We don't believe there's any God. They, they didn't have that much in those days. Every nation had a God. God's plural is generally what happened. And so you treated your gods with respect. So if you made a covenant with another nation, then they would swear by their gods and you would swear by yours. Saying that my God will hold me accountable for the covenant that we are making. And they would say our gods will hold us accountable for the covenant we're making with you. They can't swear by the gods of the other nation because they don't believe in them or they would, they would serve them. <laughs> so they have no respect for them. So when they come together and they make this covenant, this is why it's mentioned so many times, is that Israel had to swear by their gods. Now, if they had already given themselves over to the Egyptian gods, if you were the Babylonians, would you want them to swear by the Egyptian gods? No. You'd want them to swear by their gods. And everybody knows in the world who Jerusalem is of. They're of Jehovah. They got the temple that is there. 
and it's still in operation. It's being used for wrong things, but it's still there. Everyone knows this is the temple of Jehovah. So if they're going to enter into a covenant, then Zedekiah is going to make a vow according to his God, which is Jehovah. And Babylon is going to make a covenant based on their gods. They have plural gods. And that's how they would come together and they would make this vow. That's the only way that they can make the vow. If you are both in Israel, you could make it other ways because you're all under the same God. But that's not the case when you have two different nations. So it's important that we understand that. That the two nations will make an oath and they would uh, swear by the their own gods that their gods would hold them accountable. So when Zedekiah broke the vow he uh, shared with Nebuchadnezzar, he is showing Nebuchadnezzar how little regard he has for his God. Because if you broke the covenant that is made by your God, under under your God, then you are showing a, lo- a lack of respect. Now he did it within just a few years. I'm, I'm, I don't, I didn't look this up. I'm thinking, it's just kind of coming up in my head. I think it was somewhere around four years. But I, I'm, I didn't look that up, so don't hold me to it. I'm just kind of going off the, uh, shooting from the hip, so to speak, on that one. So just, just know, I, I think it was around four years that he had, um, uh, until he had gone over to Egypt and, and pursued them. It was more years than that until Babylon came over and, and uh, conquered them. But um, I think it was somewhere around four years is when he started to go over to the Egyptian side. So in four years or thereabouts, he uh, he broke this this covenant. Now, when I think about this, when I was putting this together, and I'm contemplating this, that this vow had to be done by their gods. And that him breaking this would show Nebuchadnezzar how little respect that Israel had for their own God. Who does Nebuchadnezzar have in his camp that holds God to a lot more respect? He would have Daniel. Now, if you remember in the book of Daniel, the thing we see about Nebuchadnezzar is one time he's he's on God's side and another time he's not on God's side. And then he's back on God's side again. Remember how he was fickle going back and forth? So I began to wonder... How much did Zedekiah's rebellion and lack of respect for Jehovah God have to do with Nebuchadnezzar's wavering? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I just wonder about that. Did that have an effect? You've got Daniel here and his, his all his buddies and they gave an impression of how good Jehovah is. Now, of course, the best of Daniel is still ahead of, uh, still ahead of him at this point. He's only seen a little bit of him, but enough to, he's, he has stood out. And I just wonder, when he, uh, set up that gold statue, after he had that big ordeal, the big thing with God, that, uh, your God is God. <laughs> and then he, he fell back from it. I wonder how much this had something to do with it. So, that's just me thinking. I don't know if anybody else has ever thought that or not. I just was when I was putting us together and I'm thinking about this. I'm just wondering. How is that? Because you see, how we respect our God is a testimony to the world. How we respect His Word. How we respect each other. Because the Word of God says love one another. And He's talking about the church. 
so when we are showing ourselves with, with uh, bitterness towards other Christians and fussing and fighting among other Christians, and when we're not taking his word the way that it says, and you got some groups of Christians out there that are just compromising the word all over the place. And, um, wow, I tell you, I just, I just almost leveled me. I heard one of the prominent Christian leaders. I mean, this is one I have the utmost respect for. And if I did not hear it out of his own mouth, I would have really struggled that anybody who would have come up there and told me that this person said this thing, I said, you're lying. <laughs> you are wrong. This did not happen. Oh, I'll tell you what. Hearing this, this great leader get up and on TV proclaim to everyone that this whole thing with this sex changing things is, uh, is, uh, has some truth to it. Just stunned. I, I heard it. I just was stunned. If I didn't hear it come out of his own mouth, I, I would have told you, no, you're lying. <laughs> but it, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, and when you do that, then you're making a, a statement that God made an error. This person actually said, well, there are some men that are trapped in, in women's bodies. He believed that. Well, see, I don't think God makes mistakes. That's the God I have. That's the God I serve. And I'm not going to speak about him in such a way that that, that would be. I'm not going to get on national TV or get in front of any, anybody, neither I'm sure of, or any of you, and say, well, maybe God made a mistake on this one. Uh, no, I just say you're confused. <laughs> and uh, and certainly the, the enemy is, is out there then and can be lying. Now, if you were up on Facebook, did anybody see the little post I put up on Facebook for, for a book recommendation? Anybody see that one? I'll tell you what, get that book. Phew. Man, he just is, he is just taking on some stuff. And I have it on audiobook. If you get it on, if you have audiobooks on your phone or something like that, you can just download it for, for that. It's a, it's, it's worthwhile. He's really telling you how this world got to this place. And I just loved hearing how he, he brought it about. Um, but, uh, it's a good one. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name. How to keep your head in a world that's gone crazy or something like that. Rick Renner. Yeah, Rick. Uh, I love the way Rick handles things, but this is this is good. If you get the audio book, it's not Brother Rick reading it. But the person who does read it, I don't know if they are trying to do different voices or if somebody actually comes in and does a different voice. <laughs> it's kind of comical the way that they that they do it. So um, uh, get that book, you. It'll help out. But we do know that people will have a hard time making a stand on the things that are the Word of God, and. Uh, as churches have veered off of the word and won't stand for it, so too the people who make up the church will go in that direction as well. And have. Where do we leave off at? Verse 18. We got all the way done to 18? Wow. I didn't think we got all the way done that far on this one. I thought we were still down on the other the other verses. Let's go over to verse 15. Uh, go, going back all the way to the verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiff, stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. 
Oh, I'm in a, that's why I'm reading, looking at that and saying, why do we get there? Alright, I'm a page ahead of me. That's why I'm looking at this and say, we did not read what I have down on here. <laughs> I slid over a page. Yeah, we're on another, another uh, scripture. We'll get to that here in a minute. Alright, good. Verse 18. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he did not escape. So, um, now let's go over to where I'm actually reading from. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 11. I'm going to read this so you can put it up there on the screen. Uh, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he, re- and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. That's his total that he had done. Again, I, I think it's somewhere around four years that he, um, he left the things of God or left the, his allegiance to Babylon. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now that was his prophet. Ezekiel was not his prophet, one of his prophets. Ezekiel was away from him. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. He made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messenger, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now there it would seem that God, all right, well, they got they got spared. Maybe there's a way we can do this. But... uh, of course there wasn't. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young men or virgin or the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king of the leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia, kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath as long as she lay desolate. She kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So if there's any doubt as to whether he had swore to Jehovah God, that kind of laid it all to rest. And the king of King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who made him do it. I don't think he would have offered it on his own, but he probably couldn't argue anything because he's supposed to be of Jehovah. But he didn't want to submit to Jehovah. So how we honor the commands and the word of our God is a testimony the ungodly watch. They will watch it. They will watch you. They are trying to see what it is that you do and what it is that you don't do. And we have to be be careful about what kind of an impression we're leaving. Because if the world thinks a certain thing is a command of God and we go against it, then we're leading a bad example for them. And we could say, well, the Word of God doesn't tell me to do that. 
I have freedom to do that. But then we get into the New Testament teaching of Paul. Just because you've got freedom doesn't mean you've got a right to do it. And you've got to make sure that you don't do some things that cause other people to stumble. And see, that's where the, the problem comes in. You know, and sometimes people think, well, I have the freedom to go out there and drink if I want to. I have the freedom to go out and smoke if I want to. The Word of God doesn't say that I can't drink. doesn't say that I can't smoke. But our world has certain expectations of that. doesn't expect to see Christians out there drinking. Certainly not getting drunk. Um, they don't know the Word of God. They don't, know, they don't base it off the Word of God. That's just their expectation. So if I, being known as a Christian, go out there and practice such things, that would be a problem. If your language is of such, if people use uh, coarse language or joke in a in a uh, not a good way, tell off-color jokes, I guess they call them. And if you're going to go out there and do that, use off-color language, off-color jokes, or just uh, say things to get people to think in the wrong way, this is the this is what we're leaving as an impression of God. So even though things might be lawful for me to do, it doesn't mean that it's beneficial. That's the New Testament teaching on it. But here you see it right here. This caused some things, some problems for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign king, was primed to be a servant of God. And Daniel was a great example to bring him over. And certainly he did bring him over and helped him overcome a lot of the problems. And we know at least two times he repented and came back to God. Where it was that he ended, I don't know. His son certainly uh, had no interest in repenting before God. And the nation came down under him. Verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. (laughs) So, you broke that oath. Here it is being mentioned again. You broke it. I'm going to bring it down on you. You made it. And I'm going to, and you broke it. So I'm going to bring that down on you. I will spread my net over him. And he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. So here God calls it treason when he broke this oath. So what he is outlining now, this is definitely God's plan. This is, <laughs> this is what we're going to, to do here. In verse uh, 1, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is the word that, that Isaiah brought to, to them, that the Lord would establish his house on the tops of the mountains. And in verse, did I read verse? Yeah, verse 20, let me read that again. I will spread my net over him and I shall take, be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for treason which he committed against me. Verse 21, all his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword and those who remain shall be scattered in every wind. And you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out and will crop it from the topmost of its young twigs, the tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. I wanted to read that verse before I said the one in Isaiah. Isaiah 2, 1 through 3. Again, this is talking about on top of a mountain. 
Now, if you're going to plant a young tree, top of the mountain is not always the best place to put it. But that's where God's going to put it and it will flourish. In Micah 4, 1 through 2, you have the identical passage that we saw. It is word for word. In fact, if you want, keep Isaiah up on our screen. you have that up on the screen for us? Isaiah 1 and 3. Uh, pick up at verse... Pick up at verse 2 in the Isaiah passage. I'm going to read the Micah passage and you read the Isaiah passage. You ready? (laughs) Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isn't that something? Two different prophets. Well again, as verse, look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar. This is the cedar of Israel. He's going to take one of the highest branches and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. Now this speaks of Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy. This is about what is to come after all this with Israel. After they are even brought back as a nation. A couple of verses on this. Isaiah 11.1 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots, out of his roots. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Zechariah 3 and verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, For they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Isaiah 53, 1-5 Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Four times he is referred to as the branch, a rod, a stem. It's the exact same language that we use over in the book of Ezekiel. Speaking of Jesus. Now Babylon wanted to sustain a fallen Judah. But apparently God wanted it brought down so that he could rebuild it again because their foundation had gotten corrupted. Idolatry had had worked its way in. False doctrine. Doctrines of demons. All these things had, had gotten into the to his group, to his uh, his body. So he's going to tear it down, destroy all the walls, tear down the temple. We'll build it again, and that's what he did. God wanted Israel 
destroyed, taken out, taken into captivity. Man had other plans. Nebuchadnezzar had other plans and carried them out. But eventually God's plans got carried out. He didn't make them do it. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do it. He initially didn't. He wanted to preserve some remnant to Israel. But uh, they were just too depraved. Later on, God is going to want to restore Israel. And people are not going to want to see that happen. They didn't want to see it happen the first time. We saw in the book, uh, in, in the Bible, Ezra, of course, and uh, Nehemiah. The people were against them coming back and becoming a nation. But God wanted it done, and it got done. And a, a second time, they came back to be a nation, and people didn't want it done. And God wanted it done, and it got done. If God wants it done, it will be done. If God doesn't want it done, it won't get done. <laughs> people may try, and people may... Uh, build something for a little bit, but it's not going to stand. Now what he's predicting here is that Israel, who is the, who is, you know, pretty much the low man on the totem pole right now. They're just, you know, who, who wants to conquer them basically? And Babylon came in and conquered them. Before that it was Assyria who was coming in and taking up the, the northern, they were the weaker of the, of the groups. And what he is doing here is he is predicting that the weaker will become great and that those that are great, Babylon, Assyria, and other ones, those that are great, Egypt, would become weak. See, anyone can predict that the strong will be great and that the weak will get wiped out. But God wasn't doing that. He was going the opposite way. Israel, who is weak, we're going to rebuild that. Babylon, who is strong, that's going to be torn down. Now it says there that all the trees of the field shall know. That means the other kings and the other leaders of the nations, they shall know. That's what, uh, that's what the trees mean here in, in this particular, in this particular passage. Now how we honor, live his word, love his people, how we honor him in front of the world, it's important. Don't ever think that you're not being watched. Don't ever think that people are not observing. Well, whether we are in the presence of unsaved or we are in the presence of the saved, we need to always walk in an honorable way towards the things of God. We need to honor His Word, treat His Word with great respect, and do what He says in His, in His Word. Because the world is watching. When the world hears us use abusive language, un, uh, language of off-color, or we just uh, nonchalantly cuss, just like the world would cuss. Or use the Lord's name in a wrong way, like the world uses the Lord's name in a wrong way. We shouldn't do this. We need to stand up and be different. Because how we honor Him demonstrates to the world how much we respect and honor our God. They need to be able to see this. And understand this, not only is the world watching our actions, so is God. <laughs> and just as he said with, with, uh, with our friend here, when he broke the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, God said of Zedekiah, because you did this, I'm coming against you. Because you com- committed treason, is the word he used. You committed treason against me. God takes it very seriously how we honor him in the world in front of the world. 
A lot of Christians anymore today. Well, I don't think that God, I don't believe that God, doesn't matter what you think or what you believe, what's the Word of God say? And that's all that matters. And there is a group of people, thank God, and thank God that we're around a whole mess of them here. But a group of people who will honor the things of God. And if God said it, we're going to do it. We're going to honor it. We're going to go that direction. And that's a testimony to the world. Now, the world hates it. Jesus said, the world, the word's in you. And the world will hate you because of the word. Just like they hated him. That's okay. I'd rather be hated by the world and loved by my God than seen by my God as having committed treason. Oh, Father, we thank you for the, your word that you delivered to us. I thank you for the benefit that we have, even though we don't see it, that when we honor you, when we do what you told us to do in your word, when we even live up to what the world thinks we ought to do as Christians in their presence, we're doing that to honor you. Father, we want to make sure that our life brings honor and glory to your name in everything that we do in front of every person where we are. I thank you that we can do that. I give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.